for all of the hand-wringing throughout the ages about the answer of all answers. That is the answer to that question of all questions. What is the meaning of life, of the universe, of everything? It is not, as has been reasoned in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, 42. Just want to get that straight. This morning, as we begin the first of a series that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, it's going to run for seven messages, so I'm in this, uh, I've been kind of corralled. I've got to do one of these each week, which is a real challenge. Um, so anyway, I'm going to do the best I can. Hopefully, uh, this will be a little smoother than it was in the first service. So you see, you get the benefit today of, yeah, having us do the practice and all the rehearsal and all of that, right? Well... The messages come from a group called ExploringGod.com, that is the, the subject matter. And what we're talking about this morning is, does life have purpose? That is, why am I here? Alexander Solzhenitsyn found out why all mankind are born. He found it in the strangest of places. He found it in the Bowels of depravity and suffering, serving sentence in the Soviet gulag. The gulag was a communist hellhole. Writing in the gulag archipelago, Solzhenitsyn poignantly states, Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not for prosperity of we as, as we have been accustomed, but for the development of the soul. Centuries before the Gulag was published, another writer by the name of Solomon, who was around a long, long time before the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies achieved its fame, Solomon was annoyed by his personal and his expansive knowledge of the world. He was studied by personal endeavor, and he pursued answers, finding that the only answers brought were more questions, which brought more answers, none of which brought any resolution to that big question of, does life have purpose? And the importance of that question is that the answer to it, if there is one, also then answers the question, Do I have meaning? Or is it as many have posited over the centuries that we are all just here by chance? And we simply exist by the the sheer chance of random concatenation of elements as they came together over eons of time. And just again, by sheer happenstance, the right things came together in the right way and life emerged which began more eons of evolutionary process. Which means, if that is true, we, like all other creatures, like every part of creation, are only here to put in our time until the evolutionary processes of death and decay engulf us. Meaning that mankind is nothing more than the current Evolutionary product of time. I was getting depressed just thinking about all this. 
the reality of where this takes one who is honest is that nothing matters. That there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no evil. For such terms are meaningless without someone supremely authoritative. A God who alone can give such terms ultimate meaning. Enter Solomon, again, in the book of Ecclesiastes, who with his vast resources ran an experiment of sorts that went for some time. It was a quasi-scientific test to find out what the meaning of life was. In chapter 2 of the book, there is a list of the pursuits that Solomon undertook, looking for that one thing, anything that satisfies the soul in a lasting way. Not just for a momentary zip, bing, bang, boom, but something that endured and would transcend the circumstances of life and life itself. What he begins to see with greater and greater clarity is he exhausts the solutions. Life on its own has to offer is at the very best like your breath on a cold day. And boy, how we can relate to that this time of year. You walk outside these days and you go, and immediately... The breath emanating from your lungs hits that ice-cold air and the moisture vaporizes before our eyes and forms this, this little cloud and it's impressive and it's big on a really cold day, but it's gone in less than a second. And it becomes nothing. And that is, in fact, the point of the Hebrew in the text in Ecclesiastes when it says, Hebel, Hebelim which is translated in most translations, vanity of vanities and chasing after wind. Solomon's repeated discovery after each test, seeking significance and purpose through all the human senses and resources of the world are his immortal words in Ecclesiastes 2.17. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. Now if the book of Ecclesiastes ended there, and there was no other answer, that life was in fact moment by moment without meaning, without purpose, and then you die, then what is the point of even going on living? We might as well, well all end it now. Solomon discovered that none of the things, the perks, the discoveries, the material pleasures that man thinks will give purpose, joy, and meaning can give any kind of transcendent fulfillment. But Solomon continues in his futile pursuits when at the conclusion to the book, Solomon has an epiphany. He writes his summation of his arduous testing, saying this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. All of mankind exists for the singular purpose of living for one's creator. And if this is true, and it is, 
then it doesn't matter what status or what stature one attains in life. For the measure of one's success, the level of one's contentment, one's ultimate fulfillment is defined solely by one's purpose in life, having been to please the God of heaven and earth. And this is great news. This is great news, that is, for those who live for the God who made them. This is wretched news for others if you lived your life finding your meaning and your purpose in acquiring wealth or notoriety or worldly accomplishment or fame or power because you will be judged by the judge of all judges to have been a miserable failure in life. If you have seen the movie Jobs biographical sketch, if you will, of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. What you have is a dynamic illustration of an individual of renown, to be sure, of one who truly changed the world, one who had wealth beyond limit and yet left a path of personal destruction and betrayal and pain and suffering rather than submitting his life to pursuing his creator. Rejecting what can be known about God, to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Rome, chapter 1, Jobs plunged into a spiritual void of Buddhism. For even though, writing in Romans one twenty one, for even though he knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks, but he became futile in his speculations and his foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. He became a fool. Vacuous spirituality is purposeless. For as Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Sometimes one's intellect can be their worst enemy. But that is not to give any credence to the popular epithet to believe in God, one must check their brains at the door. I think that Francis Collins would not agree. Francis Collins is not exactly a household name, but you probably either know of him for his research or at least the name of his research, The Human Genome Project. He has been the director of that since 1993, as well as the head of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Collins has spent a good part of his life mapping out DNA as a roadmap to diagnosing disease, which in turn gives a roadmap to the cures for those diseases, and he has found quite a few. Collins was not always in the business, though, of living for the Lord of heaven. I had the privilege of listening to him as one of the keynote speakers a number of years ago that this church sent me to a conference back at my seminary in Chicago on on bioethical, uh, biological ethics, human ethics in medicine. And he was one of the speakers. This genius atheist converted from atheism to Christianity in his latter 20s after seeing how radically his patient's faith transformed their own experiences of suffering. 
and combined with the writings of C.S. Lewis. It is as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he comes to God, he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Remember Solomon's earlier words that I just said, I hated life, for the work which I had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. It should be absolutely no surprise to any reasonable person as to why our world and our nation is in a free fall into despair, or why our children are angry. It is because there is a direct relationship to a civilization's distance from the God of heaven and the calamity and collapse of the institutions of it. I don't need to chronicle all of the tragedies of which we are keenly aware perpetrated by adolescents, frequently against adolescents within our culture. With every school shooting that occurs, we hear the insipid analysts who themselves, for the most part, almost down the line, are spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb as they give their expert reasons to explain what is wrong with children today that they would do such a thing. And what is the brilliant culture's explanation Is it not that the cultures or the schools or the families or the employers or the churches or the neighbors lack of affirmation of every person's beliefs, no matter how warped, perverse, or bizarre they might be? Oh, they just need to be known that they are accepted, that they are loved, that they are embraced, and they are affirmed, no matter how strange their affections may be. The irony here is that they are close to the truth, and yet they are an eternity from it. I say that because they're coming close to something, but they dare not go there. Pascal said it, that there is a God-shaped void in every heart of every person that only he can fill. Where the experts are close is that everyone, as I said, everyone is looking for acceptance. Everybody needs to feel validated at their core. Everyone does need to know that they matter in their soul and that they are important for who they are. But the only tool that those without Christ have to achieve that end is what the Apostle Paul refers to the Hebrews as those with a zeal. For God, but it is a zeal without knowledge. And so they affirm anything and everything without reservation. Now there's an accomplice in this not so grand scheme. Complicit in this orchestrated assault on God consciousness, on objective observation, and on hard science are the public school systems across the land. Don't check out with me there. If you are an intellectually honest individual, I will explain further. It is the public school systems across the land, which by design, thank you, John Dewey, talk about him in a moment, are hell-bent 
on upending the foundations of sanity infused into the souls of mankind by the Creator above. That is called God's common grace, which is upon everyone, and it has to be repelled in order for it to no longer give wisdom and truth to the individual. Parents, consequently, have been relegated to the sidelines of their children's lives. And for the most part, it's with the cooperation of overburdened parents who in their own quest for meaning, who in their own quest for significance and purpose, gladly relinquish responsibility for their children to whomever and whatever will provide more time for themselves, seeking what only God can give, the God that is in the process of being excised from society in all ways, shapes, and forms. The ancient moray of parental sacrifice for one's children and this is only speaking from the perspective of my lifetime, began eroding in the 50s, in earnest in the 60s. And by the 70s, it was already a juggernaut trampling down one God-ordained institution after another. Not surprisingly, at that same time, and in a directly proportional way, divorce began rising. Recreational sex grew in acceptability. Marriage became delayed. Two-income families became the norm. Church attendance began declining. And pregnancy, formerly and for the ages a blessing, was fast becoming a ball and chain for the woman on the go, all of which led to the capstone of what escalated the insanity of a world. Namely, the Supreme Court of the Land, finding in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution a heretofore unknown right to privacy, thus granting a woman the right to terminate her baby's life. And the search for the answer to what is the purpose of life grew even more distant. Philosopher, and father of modern education reform, John Dewey, who died around the year that I was born in the early 50s. He famously stated, education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself. And while that could be taken in a fairly positive way, Understanding Dewey's belief system, understanding his religion and stated goals for education reveals a satanic plot to reshape not merely American education, but the very world itself. Dewey's religion was secular humanism which has its grounding in the belief that the human being is the highest entity there is and thereby assumes the role of Savior, solving all of mankind's problems. Whether Dewey knew it or not, the community of Babel in Genesis 10 was the very first example of en masse divine correction of the secular humanist worldview. The crime of Babel wasn't building a great skyscraper. It was their core belief that they were gods. 
Genesis 11 tells us, Come, they said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Doesn't seem too drastic. But it's the last phrase that gives it all away. Lest we make a name for ourselves and we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But God said to mankind as a creation ordinance, meaning unchanging through time and applicable and mandated upon everyone. God said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That is my will for humanity. The civilization of Babel said, No, but we will cluster together and we will decide what is good and right for the world, which is what is good and right for us. John Dunphy, one of Dewey's manifold disciples, writing in Humanist Magazine, 1983, shows blatantly and gives absolute credibility to my assertion just previously about public education. Quoting, I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their roles as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever they teach, regardless of the educational level, preschool, daycare, or large state university. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with all its adjacent evils and misery and the new faith of humanism, resplendent in its promise of a world in which the never realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. Peter Hoagland Nebraska state senator and humanist speaking on U.S. radio to Everett Sullivan, 1983. Fundamental Bible-believing people do not have the right to indoctrinate their children in their religious beliefs because we, the state, are preparing them for the year 2000 when America will be part of a one-world global society and their children will not fit in. A prescient statement wrong only in the timing of the event of the coming one-world government if Revelation is correct.
Jimmy Carter in 1979 appointed Shirley Hufstetter first secretary of the United States Department of Education. She was there from 79 to 1981. She was on the board of directors of the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies. The public education was systematically transformed into the schools of Satan seeking revenge against the God who has vanquished him and knowing that he is headed for an eternal torture relishes in taking as many image bearers of God with him as he can. But even cynics and unbelievers like Mark Twain can stumble onto the truth even if in spite of themselves. Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, wrote, The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Does life have purpose? Do I have purpose? Do I matter? If there is no God, the answer is an emphatic no. No. You don't. None of us do. The atheist can and does assert that in their world of no God, oh, there is plenty of room for, for good and for order, for purpose. You don't need a God. So what used to be called morals which were defined by a deity, they call, and is called to this day, social constructs, which are based on some notion of something called the common good. So now what is moral to the atheist is that which benefits the common good. And so the human race no longer needs a higher power of any sort to legislate, for example, that murder is somehow inherently wrong. Nothing is inherently wrong if there is no God. There are only things that have been determined to be wrong because they are not for the common good. And this is where I would give a head explosion alert. Stay with me. How can one speak of a common good without an overriding authority to give definition to what is common and good? You see, by the atheistic view of morality, that which is determined to be the common good becomes the law. But that law then tramples on everyone who does not sign on to what has been determined to be in the interest of what is common and good according to the majority cultural opinions. But understand too that a majority can either be by number or by power. So this ideology tramples on the masses who merely because they are either lesser in number or lesser in voice or lesser in power do not matter. 
which is to say the common good establishes itself as a de facto divine authority, at least for that moment in time. But this too is problematic. Because this necessarily means that when over the course of time and over the course of change, what the majority, again, by number or power, determined to be the common good, can change overnight. Becoming not the common good, but the uncommon bad. When the majority becomes the minority by loss of number or by loss of power at that moment. In the absence of an ultimate morals giver, right and wrong can be and will be constantly in flux. Meaning, what was moral 30 years ago, or three months ago, or three days ago, can become immoral with a change of power. And that power may be at a national level. It may be at the state level, it may be at the local level, or at your household level, or from your child's principal. This is why I receive calls from individuals in this church involved in the public school system. From administration, to teachers' aides, to teachers, to counselors. Beside themselves with what is being taught now for the common good concerning all matters of perversion and warped and inhumane thinking. This is why I received a call from one of our panicked teachers having just received the new mandate for accommodating a transgender sixth grader. All employees of the school, the principal writing... On his own authority, it turned out, you will address them by their new chosen gender. You will accommodate their choice of restrooms. You will refer to them by their new name. And on a larger scale, this is why prior to 1973, abortion was illegal and was murderous. And in a blink of an eye, it is now a woman's right. This is the inescapable calamity of a world without God. This is the new world order in which we are currently living. What used to be hallowed institutions are now simply social constructs. Hallowed institutions, you see, had their grounding in the ineffable, unchanging truth of God's word. Social constructs, constructs have their grounding in the changing whims of fallen mankind. In a godless culture, to the children and young adults coming up in this new world, nothing is permanent, which means nothing is reliable. And this is the rubric by which the masses are being indoctrinated today from cradle to grave, quite literally, and still on the move even further. But, and it's a big 
but there is a God. For now, I am making that as an assertion admitted, but next week, I will hopefully give lucid reason for the assertion as we explore, is there a God as the assigned topic? And because there is a God, we can know that to the person, we do matter. And that we have purpose and life has meaning that transcend any temporal notions of why we are here. There is no greater answer to the question of whether I have purpose or not than the very ritual of reminder that we participated in just moments ago in the Lord's table. Emmanuel, God with us. He himself said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The God of heaven came for you. Don't think of the many as they, them, and those, and it's just this big mass. God came for you individually and personally, and he came without regard to what it was going to cost him. We are told by the writer of Hebrews that when Jesus comes, or when he came rather, he said, it is for the joy set before me that I endured the cross. And what was that joy? That he would bring redemption, salvation, the guarantee of eternity with God Almighty in his presence because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on behalf of you and me and any and all throughout history will accept that incredible gift. This Jesus, the creator who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of all the verses Pastor Gary could have taken today, used today for the Lord's table, There was no collusion between me and him or Russia. He chose John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But again, don't think of that world. Think of you. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish in a Christless eternity but have eternity with God himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What in all the universe, thinking back to Solomon's pursuits now, what in all the universe can give anyone any more significance, importance, and purpose than that the creator of the universe stepped into our world to tell us and to show us that he loves us. We do matter. And each of us have purpose. And life has meaning that transcends any temporal notions of why we are here. 
Jesus did not come merely to make our time here worthwhile and then pass on to oblivion or nirvana or Valhalla or the cosmos. He came to give life according to John 10 and to give it more abundantly. And he came to secure our place in his eternal presence. John 14, 2, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Why is there increasing despair and anger in our world? Because when you excise the Lord of the universe out of everything public, from cradle to grave, the Lord gives the family, the Lord gives the church or the city or the state or the nation exactly what they want. Here is what life is like without a God and King. How's that working out for you, world? And you can either repent and cry out to God for mercy, or you can bow before the humanist idols of self-determination, trying to create your tower to the heavens, but it is destined to fall. Is there meaning to life? Do I matter? When the disciples rushed to Galilee and they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. Some were doubtful, but Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and remember that I am with you always, even unto the end of the days. God invites the populace of all who will come to Him by faith. He invites the world to be a worker in the Great Commission, in His divine, overriding, spectacular, grandiose plan for the world for all time. God invites you individually and personally to become an intimate, participating person in His divine plan. Do you have meaning? Absolutely. But take that all away as our culture is doing. Why are children angry? Why are adults committing heinous, ridiculous crimes? You don't want a God to rule over you? Remember what I said back in 1 Samuel? The worst thing that God can do sometimes is give somebody what they want. Okay, you don't want me? Here you go. Fortunately, he leaves those with the eyes of faith and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to come and join him in that grand plan because he takes no pleasure in seeing the pain of the world and it falling in and collapsing on itself, which is why he says, come and be a part of my grand purpose. 
to let people know that there is a God who loves them intimately and that they are special and they do have meaning and purpose. It isn't just grab for what you can and then you die and it's over. If you do not know the God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you are living in absolute futility, vanity of vanities. You will find momentary pleasures, momentary buzzes. You will have some some momentary times where you actually might even feel good, but then sooner or later it all caves in and it is meaninglessness and in your soul you know it and so you endeavor on another pursuit. But because God loves you, He will continue frustrating that, saying, I'm here. I'm here, I'm here. When you turn and run, I will have my arms open, but I will not make you. For such is the nature of love. If you don't know this God, you are above all people to be pitied. Don't accept pity. Accept new life in the one who came to give us life and to give it abundantly. And fill those children that you are exposed to. And God bless the people of his kingdom who are involved in these wretched public arenas where they are having this junk foisted upon them or seeing it foisted upon the children and seeing God just just manicured way excised out of anything and everything and having history revised so that God is nowhere in sight. You are there to bring hope and it may cost you. And then you've got a tough choice. Bow to the idols of Baal or stand before the cross. God has put us here to help those people to whom he will say on that last day, depart from me, I never knew you. He takes those to whom now he may say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now go to find those before they stand before me and it will be too late. Do you man? Do you matter? <laughs> Infinitely, eternally so, to the loving Creator of the universe. Let me have you stand. <clears throat> Father in heaven, no words will compel anybody to have their eyes opened and their hearts just wide open to you, Lord, in your truth. Only you can do that. And I pray this moment you drop the gift of faith upon those who so desperately need it, Lord, and those who don't think they need it. I pray, O oh Lord, 
as only you can do as a perfect, merciful, loving Father. Do what you must before their end comes and it's unchangeable to bring them into your kingdom of grace to the glory of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.